UT reporter Jennifer Van Groves says the San Diego Unified Port District may be the most misunderstood government entity in town. The agency oversees 34 miles of coastline from Shelter Island to the U.S.-Mexico border. It has over 500 full-time employees and hundreds of tenants, including restaurants, hotels, and marinas. It's common for people to associate ports with shipping, but the Port of San Diego is more like a landowner that gets to make the rules for its own land. That privilege comes with unique responsibility. How can the port protect the coastline and also profit from it? For the San Diego Union Tribune, I'm Christy Totten, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Okay, Jen, so the port is a self-funded, non-taxing entity with a board of seven commissioners. Those commissioners are appointed by their member cities. Give us an idea of how the port shapes our lives, whether or not we're aware of it. What are some of the things that they oversee? You know, I think that's a really good question because I think part of the reason that the port is so misunderstood is that people really don't see how it touches them or affects them. But if you go down to the waterfront at all, either to go um, visit Seaport Village or to go enjoy... Uh, the parks there, so Embarcadero Marino Park South, Embarcadero Marino Park North. Um, you know, if you're if you like local fish, um, if you are, you know, just kind of a tourist and/or participating in commerce on the water, it kind of touches your life in so many ways, and you, you just don't realize it. Um, so the port, these these commissioners, they're making really big, weighty decisions that affect how this um, really iconic coastline looks and feels and behaves. So that's so interesting to me because the port shapes our lives in such a huge way. But again, not many people are aware of it, uh, though it has been around since 1962. So, so why do you think that is? Why aren't more people aware of it? I think there's two reasons. You know, fundamentally, it's a very difficult agency to understand. So because it's a special district and was created by the state, it has all these special rules. So it's complicated. We don't we don't elect the port commissioners. They're appointed. So we don't have that sort of exposure to them every two, four years. They're they're picked by the various city councils um, because they they represent the, the cities that are part of the district. So there's a lot of like... Um, maybe behind the scenes sort of feel to who the port commissioners are and what they do. So there's, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect um, that I've heard from people who work at the port is uh, in the past, not the current CEO or the past C- or just the most recent CEO, Randa, but the, the CEOs before maybe wanted the agency to operate a little bit more removed from public view for whatever reasons they might have had. Um, and so those two things, I think, have created a sort of uh, distance, so to speak, where I, as a San Diegan, don't have a relationship with the port, the agency, although I clearly have a relationship with the port district because we go there. We, you know, we use those um, destinations. We buy those products. Uh, we go, you know, dining on port land or port property. Um, So there's that disconnect. We don't always put the pieces together. So you mentioned there are some decisions to be made. The port has a new CEO, Joe Stavescent. He's a former civilian Navy executive, and they're facing some pretty big issues. In your story, you wrote that they're facing an $18 million budget deficit. What are some of the other challenges they're facing? Well, the deficit is a really big problem because it kind of creates this existential question of, you know, how the port operates. And the deficit 
sets the port up to continue dipping into a reserve fund. They had, you know, 80 something million in reserves um, not that long ago after they dip into reserves to kind of cover the, the, the deficit. They're, they'll be down to, I think, 52 million at the end of the fiscal year. Um, and so and and because they are a business that requires revenue from their tenants, this situation isn't going to resolve itself. But that kind of leads me to the really big issue um, on the horizon right now is tensions between tenants and the port. They they run high because of this pandemic that we're in. And so, you know, the situation that we've seen, you know, with small business and even big business all over the country where, um, you know, restaurants, shopkeepers, et cetera, they're paying rent on facilities that they can actually use that's bubbled up in the port district to the extent of, you know, every meeting you have um, the head of the Port Tenants Association uh, either appearing through non-agenda public comments, so where she, she comes and she talks just to talk because nothing's on the agenda, but she needs them to hear her. And they do take her seriously. Um, Sharon Clower, Cloward is her name, and she runs the Port Tenants Association, and she's a frequent member at these, or frequent attendee at these meetings, um, now virtually, obviously. Um, but she kind of speaks of this situation where tenants are kind of afraid to raise their hand and say, I need help. But behind the scenes, they're saying, you know, that maybe the port isn't the greatest agency to work with. And and of course, the port doesn't want that re- reputation. They want their tenants to thrive. They need that revenue. Um, but there there is that, that duality where they need the revenue themselves. Vice Chairman Dan Malcolm said that it might be time for the, the port to consider uh, raising taxes or collecting taxes. It currently doesn't. Do you have more information about who would be taxed? And also, how is that idea being received so far? You know, it's such an interesting question. And so he, so what happened was this was not something that was on the agenda. They were talking about the deficit, um, which they talk about finances now at every public meeting um, or every public board meeting. And, um, you know, he, he threw this out there kind of, we're in a black swan event. That's, those are his words. And, you know, for the first time ever, we might need to have this conversation or the first time since 1970, which was the last time they levied taxes, what that would look like. I don't think anyone knows, and he might have more specific ideas, but he just kind of put it out there that this is a conversation that needs to be had. We need to look at what is legally allowed because there are very specific rules as part of the port act. Um, he cited some section that I that I wasn't super familiar with. It's a very dense, um, legally difficult to read document. But I know, you know, Zuket, uh, Michael Zuket, who's the chair of the board, he chimed in and just, you know, kind of affirmed that he would support that type of discussion. But but essentially, we're just super early stage on that discussion. But it might become more of a pressing matter if the financial um, aspect is continues to be uh, just such a huge problem going forward. So I would say early stage, but to even put it out there is a very, uh, it really struck me. I was like, okay, we're talking, you know, taxes. The port does not collect taxes. It's kind of like it's big thing. We're not, we're a non-taxing agency. Well, that might change. What might this mean for the convention center ex- expansion plans and just other projects the public has been sort of waiting on? So that's a, that's a complicated question. So the port recently um, 
uh, they denied the Fifth Avenue Landing Hotel project. And so that project was going to, it wasn't approved, but it had proposed to build, you know, a pretty big hotel tower on the back of the convention center in the same area where the city of San Diego had wanted to expand the convention center. Um, But that expansion has been mired in its own very complicated history. But had the port chosen to move, move forward with the Fifth Avenue Landing Project, that would have pretty much killed off any hope that the city of San Diego has in, in you know, expanding the convention center there. Since the port denied that project and um, they denied it on their own grounds, that was unrelated to the convention center expansion, there's kind of this maybe nugget of hope out there for people who've wanted to expand the convention center. But that has to do with a whole other political process and a two-thirds majority uh, vote. So there's a lot going on there. But but the port essentially freed up the land. So the land is there. And that that's that's a big deal in in and of itself. So the new CEO is like a week into his job. Obviously, these big decisions, you know, are on the horizon. What should we as residents be looking for, you know, as it relates to our own lives? You know, the the, the biggest thing that I think that's on the horizon, and it's it's pretty far along in the process, is what's called the Port Master Plan update. Um, and so the port is going through, it's now in year eight so it's been seven plus years of planning the whole district. Um, and it's kind of like a community plan where full neighborhoods are, are planned by, you know, the cities. And then and then it's a development uh, and policy framework. So it kind of shapes what can and cannot be built for the next 30, 40 years until they do a new plan. So the port's in a planning process for the whole district. And it's, you know, they've had like, uh, they've made some major changes along the way. They had a milestone moment at the end of last year or so, just just like a month or two ago, they decided to basically, you know, move into the next stage, which is environmental review. Um, But environmental review has its own set of requirements that are state required. And so that gives the public more opportunities to weigh in and say, wait a minute, I don't like what you're planning here. And so if you take issue, as I've heard from a lot of readers, with some of the um, density planned for the North Embarcadero, um, or if you take issue with how they're treating um, Navy Pier, which right now there isn't a plan, so they still have to carve that out, then you will have these opportunities to voice um, your objection in a way where, where someone such as myself might hear it. And if there's enough objection you know, it kind of creates this ripple effect of, you know, the port might have to change its plan to appease community members. And we've seen that happen earlier in the process. So for Shelter Island, um, there was a lot on the table on Shelter Island that people didn't like. There was hotel proposed. And then there was also the port had talked about tearing down a couple of well, tearing down or making fully public a couple of um, piers there that are essentially residential piers. They're essentially ri- private piers that are are open to the public, a portion of them, for part of the day. But Coastal Commission, which is the higher-ranking agency, they they say yes or no to the port master plan at the end of the day. They have said for decades that those piers need to be entirely public or they need to come down. And so the first version of the port's master plan draft 
had it uh, that those peers would have to come down or be made fully in public. Well, there was a lot of back backlash. I, I covered a lot of it. This was like two years ago now, which is crazy to think about. Um, and the, the commissioners decided um, in a split decision that, you know what, let's let's keep these peers intact because there's a historical value to them. And then, you know, let's not allow any new residential peers. The problem with that decision is they responded to the community. The community's happy. Well, this plan is still in a draft stage. And so Coastal Commission could come in and say, no, this is not legal. This is in violation of the Coastal Act because these are, you know, not public access peers. Um, And so decisions like that get made all the time. And if you're not paying attention, you might miss it. And, you know, some of these things might be of, of high, high priority to you. So I would just say, even though Port Master Plan sounds really boring, um, I think, to the average person, if you see me write a story about it, you know, perk up, you know, read the parts that might matter to you, and then, and then you know, submit a public comment and, you know, kind of pay attention to, to that process so it doesn't pass you by. And now for the news. Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego is no longer an all-male institution. For the first time ever, 60 women were among new recruits today. In 2019, Congress ordered the San Diego Boot Camp to integrate women into its training battalions by 2028. Until now, female recruits have attended boot camp at the Marines East Coast Training Base in Paris Island, South Carolina. San Diego U.S. Attorney Robert Brewer will step down at the end of the month at the request of the Biden administration, along with dozens of other Trump-appointed U.S. attorneys. Brewer has headed the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of California for the past two years. The move is routine for new administrations. U.S. attorneys are selected by the president and must be confirmed by the Senate. Qualcomm rolled out its next generation of 5G processors Tuesday that the company says can deliver peak download speeds of 10 gigabytes per second. The company's new Snapdragon X65 baseband chip is currently being tested by device makers. It's expected to be used in smartphones and possibly other electronic gadgets launched later this year. Abby Hamblin is an opinion editor and producer on the UT's Ideas and Opinion team. Abby does a lot of things for the team, like social media, analytics, and writing, and she sits on the editorial board, helping to determine the team's take on the news. But her favorite job is hosting Name Drop San Diego, a podcast, along with me. Uh, She didn't say that, but I think it's true. Abby, welcome. Thanks for having me. So when you're talking to people about Name Drop, how do you describe it? It's definitely pretty easy to describe. It's just interesting San Diegans talking with us for, you know, about 30 minutes. We have chefs and musicians and scientists and really just, I mean, it's not hard to find interesting people in this city. So we just interview them and we hope to help people get to know, you know, people they already have heard of or also just um, someone they need to know and um, might make their life a little more exciting to know about. So, yeah. Yeah. When did we start this? I think it was May of last year. And as I was uploading last night's episode, I think we're like at 40. 40 yeah, episodes. we're about to be on our, this is our 39th this week. And next week we're going to be on 40. Amazing. Awesome. Yeah. What have been the highlights for you so far? So I would say, I mean, just as a San Diegan, I think that having Tony Gwynn Jr. on there, um, talking about his baseball career, and of course, talking a little bit about his dad was very special. 
Uh, but I just find that, like I said, San Diego, San Diego is so full of interesting people that I am constantly surprised. And, you know, some of the people who are kind of nervous to be on the show end up having some of the coolest things to say. And, you know, some of the bigger stars or, you know, bigger names reveal some really interesting things. So I think the highlight is just the little surprises that happen and, um, you know, hopefully helping people get to know the cool and exciting things that happen all over this county. Yeah, we talk about that all the time, just like what amazing people live here. You know, like for our first episode, we had John Foreman, the front man of Switchfoot. The next episode, we had Ellen Ochoa, the first Latina to go to space. Uh, then yeah. after that, it was Ralph Rubio. And there's just like no shortage of amazing people to talk to. Um, last week, we had Wilma Wooten. So she is head of the county health department. And she's been making all of the decisions about COVID. But we re didn't really talk to her about that because she talked, you know, if you want to read the COVID news, you know, you should, should subscribe and read it in the paper. We really talked to her um, about her, which like we hadn't seen anywhere else. So for you, like, what is your philosophy when you go into a name drop episode? What is it that you're looking to get? Yeah, I think one of my favorite things actually is when we ask someone how they got into the field that they're in. For example, we talked to a glaciologist and, you know, here in San Diego, it's so sunny and warm. You wouldn't think somebody who studies Antarctica and Greenland would be right here in our community. Uh, but I think it's just really cool to see how people end up where they are. And oftentimes there's a very personal story or reason um, you know, while they're, why they're doing what they're doing. For example, Wilma Wooten, uh, the doctor, San Diego County Public Health Officer, said that, you know, her great-grandparents who raised her really instilled uh, taking care of the elderly into her upbringing. And that's what she's doing today by working through the coronavirus pandemic. And obviously, older folks are more vulnerable. So um, it's just kind of cool. Yeah, we do ask them personal questions and help you get to know who they are. Mario Lopez, for example, famous actor and host. We talked to him and, you know, we tried to ask him, what's your favorite restaurant in Chula Vista, where he's from? And just just get behind kind of the normal stuff you'd hear in the news. Just go a little deeper. Um, so today's episode is Eric Pearson. He's a film studies professor from University of San Diego. Tell us about him. Yeah, so this has been a really great episode. I think the timing is amazing. We're seeing the Golden Globe nominees come out, the Oscar nominees come out. But one of the best things about talking to him is, you know, true, true film critics and people who love films. I think those things don't even matter as much to them, although they are important conversation, especially when it comes to critics. Um, he is just so moved by films from you know, the very big expendables type movies with the stars that are kind of guilty pleasure movies to the very moving uh, films that you'll see at the Sundance Film Festival, which he often attends. And, um, you know, we talked about how we're all kind of stuck at home in the coronavirus era and we're watching a lot more entertainment than maybe we would have just kind of in our living rooms. And um, he's just so full of knowledge. He's been published in, you know, journals and different... Um, outlets that focus on theater and media literacy and film and representation of people of color in those spaces as well, uh, including on television. So just a person who's very full of knowledge in this area. And we just had a lot of fun with it too. So we talked about serious things like, you know, understanding what we see, but also, you know, what makes movie watching fun. And he gave advice too, for how you pick what movies you will watch and maybe taking some risks, which I need to do more often in my movie watching. So it was a great conversation. 
Yeah, same here. I was really like surprised when he said he watches like 200 movies a year and you're like, wait, 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 did I hear that right? Yeah, <laughs> that is like, insane. <laughs> I feel like maybe I've done that during the past year just because of the pandemic, but usually not. Um, the other thing is at the end, he was like, wait, aren't you going to ask me my favorite movie? And we weren't because we thought it was just it would just be too on the nose or that he wouldn't be able to narrow it down because of like his deep knowledge of film. But uh we did ask him, and he had a really great answer. So tune in to find out what a film professor thinks is the most perfect film ever made. Yeah, I it's not what I would have guessed. Um, and like, yeah, that is funny that we thought, like, you know, someone who's seen so many films, it's kind of a cliche to ask them what the best one is, and right. maybe even an insult because they're so well-versed. But right. yeah, he had a great answer. So I hope everybody checks it out and hopefully learns a lot. That is a professor. So, he, you know, he has a lot to say in educating people about the film world. Mm-hmm. Um, and just finally, can you tell people how to find Name Drop, how to get in touch, anything else you want to throw in there? Yes. Yeah, so thanks again for having me. We love to shout out Name Drop San Diego. Go to sandiegouniontribune.com slash SD to find all our episodes. We run excerpts of the interviews there too, if you prefer to read them. Or just go to your favorite listening app and search Name Drop San Diego. We're in Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, you know, all the big ones. And we're also on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Name Drop SD. And we share all the episodes there and, you know, sometimes ask people for questions or who they want to see on the show next. So uh, we'd love to have you engage with us there. And please just subscribe and check out Name Drop San Diego. We have something for everybody on there. So hope you can find something you enjoy. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. You can find more online at sandiegouniontribune.com. I'm your host, Christy Totten. We'll see you tomorrow.